On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. So let's begin. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is old scratch himself, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good. I like Old Scratch. I, I it's need not bad, eh? Business card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. You know, Old Scratch is a, uh, a name that they use for Satan, Liam. And as a uh, religiously leading gentleman like yourself, that must be uncomfortable, right? Because it's such a cool name. But you also, you love that other guy, right? The the good guy. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, I love how invested you are in trying to, like, pick ver- small aspects of who I am and then, like, blow them up. Small uh, aspects? My understanding, Liam, is that you went to seminary school. I did, but like a lot of people who went to seminary school, I left with more questions <laughs> than I had when I went in and, and and not particularly interested in organized religion, but that's fine. Uh, no, I like Old Scratch. I, I'm not convinced Old Scratch describes Satan, though, right? Like, Satan is... Uh, the great accuser and old scratch is like a devious fawn who lives in the woods and maybe wants to fuck with you. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it's, it just feels like uh, uh, there old scratch feels more interesting to me. Whereas, you know, uh, say like traditionally Satan's actually part of the system. I know we like to lift him up, but really he's just the prosecutor in the court system of heaven. That's not that interesting. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather go with one of these other demon figures. They seem a lot more uh, like they got good backstories. Liam, at the time that this episode is being released into the world, it's likely to be well into December. Now, at the time we're recording this, it's a little bit earlier. But I thought, Liam, it would be fun, before we introduce our guest who's waiting patiently, for you to make some predictions for what life is going to be like at the time that this episode is released into the world. Oh, so that I'll look stupid like when we're yeah. all huddled uh-huh. over fires in camps trying to survive. That Is that people... one of your predictions? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying when I'm out here being like, I think Christmas will be fine. And everyone's like, yeah, way to go, Liam. No, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm very curious how Americans are going to respond to a lockdown Christmas because I feel like oh, that's got to be it, right? Like there's there's no way – the situation we're in right now is going to just be better by Christmas. And I know everyone's got their fingers crossed for a Christmas miracle, but I just don't think that's a real thing. And I'm curious. I just I think people are more willing to give up Thanksgiving. I think Christmas is like people are just going to do what they want regardless of uh, recommendations. And that has me uh, nervous and anxious and uncomfortable. Yeah, that's that's how I feel about that. Liam, I read today, and this might be a little out of date at the time that this comes out, that Santa Claus is COVID resistant. So that's got to be good news. I mean, if he is, then he needs to get down here and start donating some blood because <laughs> that's what we need in our lives. Um, come on. I One of the hardest things for me as a parent is the whole Santa Claus thing because uh, Maeve is just old enough to be really stoked on Santa. And I'm like, ooh, am I going to roll with this or am I going to just be hands off or what am I going to do? You know, if you ruin it for her, she'll ruin it for all the other kids she knows. That is the only downside. I'm totally <laughs> fine with ruining it for her, actually. But the idea that I'm going to have some other parent pissed at me gives me like serious. Not a very, not a very uh, punk attitude to be worried about the social pressures of other parents, Liam. O'Donnell. I mean, I mean that's fair. And fuck <laughs> you, but uh, I just don't like dealing with other parents. I don't like talking to other parents. I don't like interacting with other parents if I can help it. 
Spoken like a true parent. Our guest today is an actress, writer, filmmaker, and podcaster. She was the director of the wonderful 2014 documentary Out of Print and has recently been crowdfunding an adaptation of Stephen King's short story, I Know What You Need. You can also find her co-hosting the podcast, The Horror Movie Survival Guide. It's Julia Marchesi. How are you doing, Hi. Julia? Hi. Hello, boys. How are you? I'm doing um, so well. How about this? I got a, a Santa Claus, Dick Miller-related story for you right off the top. This yeah. is so good. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Why aren't you my co-host, if I can call him that, rather Stop. than Liam O'Donnell? Let's hear it. What's the story? Um, so I went to go see Gremlins when it came out in the theater with my parents, and I was five years old when I saw Gremlins, and it scared the fuck out of me. Like, I can't even tell you. We <laughs> went back to the house that night, and we had locked ourselves out of the house on accident, and my oh. parents wanted me to like slip in through the window and go open the door, and I was like, mm-mm, nope, Gremlins in there. Um, but... <laughs> At five years old, uh, that movie ruined Santa Claus because it tells you there's no Santa Claus in that film. And I was like, well, right, holy fuck. Right. And, I, and I told I, I told Joe Dante that and he laughed at me. <laughs> 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 I'm sure it's the same for a lot of kids, but like Gremlins did it. And I was like, well, there you are at five. For those who did not experience Gremlins as a child, it's a little hard to explain. I feel like the the, the common... Uh, perspective on the Gremlin series is that they are not necessarily horror movies. I mean, the second one really isn't, but the first one, boy, if you saw that when you were between the ages of five and 12, that could have fucked your shit up. Boy, I don't usually say something quite so coarsely, but I think it fucked a lot of kids' shit up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's I, weird. You know, it, it not only like terrified me, it also ruined Santa Claus like all yeah. in one go. That's why I love that movie. And I love that, I love that that monologue's in there. Like, holy fuck, that me monologue. Too. It's so dark. I love how they they mock it in the second one, too. Liam, you were saying? It's weird that I don't consider that my first horror movie, because I definitely saw it when it came out, but I don't remember it having that deep an impact on me, and I really more remember Nightmare on Elm Street as being the first movie to really fuck my shit up. Uh, I don't know. I I, I don't know why. On rewatch... Gremlins is scary. Like it's it's you know it's not get under your skin scary as an adult, but there's definitely moments where I'm like, how did I watch this as a kid and not fucking lose my mind? <laughs> yeah, and we know how you were as a kid as well, Julia. I'm so glad that you're here today. Not Thank only because you. I'm such a fan of yours and a fan of Out of Print, but also that recently you've been working on making an adaptation of Stephen King's short story. I know what you need. Can you tell us a little bit about where you currently are with the process? I know that you were going through a crowdfunding uh, uh, campaign. Where is that currently? Is the hope is we're still going to get to see this in the future? Yes. So uh, this film is part of Stephen King's Dollar Baby program, where he has certain short stories of his that are available for $1 for one year contract. Um, but the films have to be 45 minutes or under and non-profit, non-broadcast. So they can't be shown online or on in, in theaters, but it can be shown right. in private screenings and film festivals. And the cool thing about it is that he's been doing this program for like since 1983. And uh, and it's amazing because he wants to he has you. He wants to see everything everybody makes. Mm-hmm. So part of the contract is you have to send your film to him to watch. At the end, he wants to see it, still wants to see how people are interpreting his work, which is amazing. So you know making this film going in that like at the end of the day, the end game is Stephen King sits down and watches your movie. <laughs> Not intimidating at all. Um, I, also, like, I mean, I know that you'd be making it for an audience of more than Stephen King, but yeah. when you're in the process of making it, how could you? How could that not be in your mind? At the end, it's it's like making something, like uh, writing a play for the king, right? Like literally, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Applause. That's good. Um, 
it feels I mean I you know I, I think what made me more nervous is I, I had to adapt the script as well so sure. like putting in you know I have to write some transition scenes and stuff so putting in my words with his words felt weird because mm. uh, I tried to keep it as faithful as possible and only put like my words in when I had to so when I had people read it I was like could you tell is mine different and they're like no it's fine and I was like okay I don't want it to stand out and be weird. Um, so, yes, went through the crowdfunding campaign and it went well. We're still going forward. Uh, it's in pre-production. So we're looking to start doing cast and crew and whatnot. So we're going to be the coolest thing about it is the so the story came out in 1976. Um, mm-hmm. and it was published in Cosmopolitan magazine and then it was added to Night Shift in 1978. And I'm going to keep the film set in 1976 when it first came out. And it's set at the University of Maine where Stephen King went. And so we are going to be filming at the University of Maine. So it'll be the exact locations that he describes in the story, the library and the dorms and all that will be the exact ones. So as a constant reader and a Stephen King nerd, it is like heaven. I can't even tell you. What made you choose this particular short story? That's a very good question. Um, I have an affection for very strange boys. Um, mm. So I will give you some examples of some of my weird crushes. Um, Norman Bates would be one. Um, yes. Pre-psychotic pre, pre, pre break. Um, uh. Uh, Eric Binford from Fade to Black I'm in love with. Uh, mm-hmm. Martin from Martin I'm in love with. Oh, uh, that's my favorite. Uh, I love Martin. I'm so hot for Martin. Um, Arnie from Christine. Like these kind of like broken boys where you're like there's something wrong with you but you're really adorable i just want to cuddle you so uh the main character uh in this story i know what you need is very that type so they describe him in like the second paragraph and i was like yep on board <laughs> this gentleman <laughs> and they, he's described as like he's unkempt and he's got like a too big fatigue jacket on and his socks don't match and i'm like yep yes please so it was me because the main character is female and it's her like falling in love with him and going with uh, in this really strange relationship with him and so i was because i was in love with him like immediately i was on board with her and going through this journey with her and it's so it's to me it's a love story even though it's really fucked up um because it's stephen king so of course it is right but it's at the end of the day this very obsessive love story and like where does the line between love and obsession go um it's like it's a very cool low-key story it's not like insane blood and guts or anything it's just kind of low-key and i like that about it liam if i at gunpoint had to force you to adapt one of the works of stephen king now i know that obviously with uh with the tradition of this is with a short story but i'm gonna open it up for you liam you need to adapt any work of stephen king what would it be I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give you dead air, Doug. But that's actually a tough question um, because, oh. um, well, a, uh, I would be more inclined to try a short story, and it's been a while since I've read uh, one of the short story collections, so my brain is kind of like feeling kind of blank as to the varieties of options available to me. Um, and it's really hard because I keep thinking of things that already have adaptations. You know, that's okay. I mean? That's okay though, and I think that this yeah. is cool because like. The cool thing about it is it's the same with the Dollar Baby program, right? You have all these people who are making the same story, but it's like yeah. your version of that story. Mm-hmm. So you have the same, yeah. the same source material, but then it becomes a completely different story in somebody else's eyes. And like my version of I Know What You Need is going to be different than anybody else's. Nobody's in love with Edward. He's a fucking creep. But like I'm like, yes, please. So like it's just about what – like you think about the different pet cemeteries or the different it's and like they're just totally right. different right. even though they're it, the same. I, I'm inclined It would to- be fu- – sorry, Liam, but it would be funny if your answer was I Know What You Need. Like, that's the one that you want to adapt as well. 
I would love to see it. There's actually one of the other Dollar Baby filmmakers had, had there's one other version of I Know What You Need out there that I haven't oh. watched on purpose because I'm like, I don't want it to influence mine, even though it wouldn't because mine will be different. But, you know, you're like, mm, OK, I, I've I've been pretty when I was a kid, I was pretty obsessed with I'm trying to remember the original name. Is it um, maybe like The Longest Walk or something like that? Walk. Yes, The Long yeah, Walk. Yeah, the long walk. Walk. That was going to be my answer. It's either The Long yeah. Walk or The Talisman were my answers. The Long oh, Walk. Oh, The Talisman. Oh, man. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I was obsessed with The Long Walk. and I was, That's crazy. That's a crazy book to be obsessed with as a kid. It's so bleak. Yeah, it is. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I was highlighting my, uh, uh, my introduction to Nightmare on Elm Street, which was when I was in second grade. Oh. Uh, and in third grade, I was at um, – I was unfortunately actually at a friend of my mom's funeral who sort of well functioned for me as like a grandfather. Like we weren't related, but he was from my original neighborhood in Philly, and we would go visit him a lot even after we moved to New Jersey. And uh, this – I was at his funeral, and that's when I finished my first Stephen King novel. It was in third grade. And uh, I was pretty obsessed from third grade till uh, – but basically until the what's the what's the one about the baseball player in the woods? Uh, the girl uh, who loved Tom Gordon. I'm yes. reading that. I'm reading that one right now. I'm in the middle of that one. That was the last that was that was my Stephen King period was from third grade till that book came out. And yeah. that's not to say that book is bad or anything like that. It's just that was the last one I got it when it came out and was like into it. And then I don't know what happened in my life, but I just stopped reading new Stephen King. I <laughs> still will go back to old things I loved. But for that time, he was the only fiction author that I really cared about, you know, uh, in a, in a real way. And so, um, I don't know why, but from, uh, a very young age, like pre middle school, I read the, the long walk and was obsessed with it. And really it, it, I reread it multiple times. It's, uh, it's, it's seriously one of my very favorites. And it, I, the thing that is most mind blowing to me about that book is that it's the first novel he ever wrote. It's not the first one that got published, but it's the first one he ever wrote. First fucking novel. Are you fucking kidding me? That thing's amazing. <laughs> ah, he's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to introduce, uh, in, uh, I should say, I'm going to interrupt the Stephen King love fest for a moment because, Julia, I have a very serious question to ask you. Oh, I love serious questions. Well, the thing is, you made a documentary called Out of Print, a wonderful mm -hmm. documentary about revival and repertory cinemas and the process, you know, and the fact that, I mean, certainly I think a lot of the listeners of this show love the process of going to see a movie in a cinema, in the theater. Right now, uh, this might surprise some people listening, there's a pandemic ongoing, uh, and it makes it very difficult, uh, if not impossible, depending on where you are in the world, to see a movie in the theater. How are you dealing with the fact that it's so much more difficult to see a movie with other people? I mean, th that's really the most heartbreaking, I mean, not the most, but very high on the list of heartbreaking mm -hmm. things uh, from this pandemic is just because I love movies and I go to the movies twice a week, three times a week. And it's, you know, being around, surrounded by other people and watching movies is just one of my favorite things. And so I purposely picked the place I live because I can walk to five different movie theaters. Like, and sure. it's, you know, the, the worry of what's going to happen and how are these places going to survive is of course something that I'm very upset about. So I've been trying to donate as much as I can to different revival cinemas around the country and around the world and try to support that way and keep them open. And I'm of course scared to think about things closing and I don't want them to, and I know that they probably will, but I, you know, I just, I don't know what to do, you know, and it, it, I went to the, the drive-in once and uh, it was really sad 
because it was by myself in my car and I was surrounded mm. by all these people. And I was like, I can't, it's not like the whole thing about going in the movies, like you're all sitting together and enjoying it together, but I'm in my car by myself. I can't hear anybody or see anybody. And I was like, Oh, this is even sadder than sitting at home by myself. <laughs> I, I I really do like the driving experience, but if you're you, with somebody uh, else though, right? Like, exactly. Have you because, ever been to the driving alone? It's fucking weird. Yeah. Right. Cause you still need a reaction. That's part of the deal, right? You want to laughter. You want to see people scared. If there's a, a scary scene, you, you know, part of it is that you're feeding off that energy exactly. and it's hard to, you know, it's hard to feed off yourself. Speaking of the, uh, the short story survivor type by Stephen King. <laughs> you didn't, um, an- you didn't answer by the way, what short story you were, you were going to, that is the, I have not the- yet seen the animated creep show special, which does an adaptation of survivor type. The, the gruesome short story yeah. by Stephen I- King. I think there's some dollar baby ones of that. One. There, there are some dollar baby ones. Uh, I, I don't think that they're uh, commonly available to to watch, but it's that's definitely the one that I, that when I remember reading it as a kid, that I could see it in my mind. You mm-hmm. know, you could almost see how it could exist. I also just love the idea of you know that that the small cast of one person and you know in this kind of isolated area. It's just it to me that that. It would almost be – it would be so difficult to make it into something watchable, but that to me is what makes it so interesting. Yeah. But believe it or not, even though I'm bummed about the uh, cinematic experience being watered down uh, for the foreseeable future, unfortunately, Julia, we're here to talk about Dick Miller. The yeah. Actor. I love Dick Miller. Why, Julia, do you love Dick Miller? <laughs> <laughs> I love Dick Miller because he's just like – Every time he pops up in a movie, I go, yeah, Dick Miller. Because he's just somebody that I, you know, there's actors that you just like, I want to see this guy get more work. He deserves more work. You know, it's like somebody like Noah Taylor, who I feel like is like fantastic. And I'm like, just give him more work, guys. He's so great. Mm-hmm. And like Dick Miller's always great. And he did work, obviously. I mean, he has an incredibly prolific career. Um, but he's just always a delight. And he always has this, that, that, just, I love his face. very much so you know it's it's interesting that we're we're talking today about a um aspect of dick miller's career that we haven't really captured on this podcast in the first four episodes by which i mean uh the movie that we'll be talking about after hours he's only in it for one scene he's in kind of the the key era of dick miller for me personally which is that mid 80s era where his face is just everything you see him and it just gives you these positive eyes if you know anything about cinema and his connection to the Roger Corman camp and all that sort of thing. You see him and it's all you can think about for a moment and then you move on with the rest of the movie and it's just kind of that that uh, segregated moment of positivity. I'm surprised to hear that you feel so positive about him considering that he's connected to this movie that traumatized you as a child. Uh, <laughs> but I, still, I, loved, I love Joe Dante as well. And like, That's true. E- even though I, uh, you know, it terrified me. Like I went on, like I watched Explorers, I watched Inner Space, I watched Howling, mm-hmm. like I watched all that stuff. So I was on board with that, um, even though, you know, but he's a, a Joe Dante as well is a, is a lovely, lovely man. And I'm sure we'll talk about him as well because he's you can't I in my mind, they're kind of connected. I mean, I know he's connected to Roger Corman as well, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, Dick Miller and Joe Dante because he's his he's his like muse. Like he's, you know, he yeah. just pops up in these all these movies that makes me so happy. I like it when directors pick somebody that is like you will be in every one of my movies. And I go, that's awesome. I, I love any of those relationships, even when it's not just bit parts, right? Any director-actor relationship mm-hmm. where they work together, to me, it, there's even aside from the level of continuity and the fact that you know that there's a comfort level there and what that allows them to do, to me, it's just it, 
it kind of breaks away from the manufactured feeling of a lot of movies because of those relationships that exist at their core. Now, Liam, you're probably right now hoping that I don't bring up your connection to Joe Dante. <laughs> you mean your theory that he's secretly my dad? Yes, that he's secretly oh. your dad because Liam's mother went to school with Joe Dante. Oh, nice. Yeah, they went to college together, which she didn't yeah. bring up till I was well into my 30s. What? You just casually dropped that bomb in the 30s? What's that about, Mom? She she didn't realize how popular his movies were, though she actually exposed me to multiple of them. She never paid attention to who was directing them. So she knew he did <laughs> Gremlins. So she's like, yeah, you like Gremlins. I'm like, I like a lot of his movies. She's like, oh, I like what else? I was like, what about The Burbs? We watched that one a lot. She's like, oh, he directed The Burbs? I'm like... How do you not know this? <laughs> She's like, I don't know. He's a weird guy I went to college with. I don't know. I was like, all right. I was like, were you friends? She's like, ah, I think he slept with a couple of my friends, but that's about it. <laughs> Julia, what are some of your favorite Dick Miller performances? Um, I just watched for the first time, actually, uh, Demon Night, mm. in which – uh, Dick Miller's titty party was the highlight so of that good. movie for me. So good. <laughs> because the mainly because I was just like, because Dick Miller himself got to be on set doing that that day. So it's not about what the character's doing. It's about what he's doing. And I'm like, he got to have <laughs> these hot chicks topless all over him all day. And he must have been the happiest man alive. And so seeing him happy <laughs> makes me happy. Um, um that that particular scene I think is mentioned and and uh, spoke of specifically in the Dick Miller documentary, uh, and I, it, 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 I think exactly what you said was what Dick Miller would say yeah. in regards to. We actually talked about uh, Demon Knight on our most recent episode of uh, You Don't Know Dick, and it it is a, the kind of movie where if you have not revisited. Uh, Demon Knight listener, and maybe you have a certain feeling towards that movie that might not be so positive, I really strongly recommend checking it out again. It has held up incredibly well. I actually think that it's one of the stronger uh, horror movies of that time period. Certainly mainstream horror of the mid-90s. It really is so much fun to watch. Yeah, I was really expecting it to be kind of terrible, to be honest. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> I was really surprised. I was like, because you have, you know, Billy Zane and uh, Jada Pinkett and William Sadler and everybody just like chewing scenery like there's no tomorrow. So that it was a, it was pretty fun. And Dick Miller's was the best part for me. Um, and uh, you guys know, do you know that I'm in a movie with Dick Miller? I know this. Now, I, 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 I'm <laughs> I'm so excited. This is the first time that we've had a guest. We've had a guest who directed a Dick Miller documentary. We had a guest who interviewed Dick Miller. We have guests that uh, did a book about Dick Miller. But this is the, our first guest that was in a film acting with Dick Miller. Uh, what well, was that all about? I didn't. Well, not I, with, obviously. Yes, yes, I didn't share a scene with him, sadly. So I did not see him on set. So that makes me sad. But I can say that I, I can say that we were in this film, in the same film, which was uh, Burying the X. Yes. Um, which, so uh, Joe Dante was going to be filming some scenes in the New Beverly. And so I asked him, I was like, can I be an extra in one of the scenes? And just like, because they do, do a shot of like the movie theater, right? Sure. And he was like, I can do better than that. And I was like, what? And he was like, I'll give you a line. And I was like, really? And he was like, yep. And I was like, oh, great. So I got to have one line um, and I got to have it with Anton Yelchin, which was amazing. So he used to come to the New Beverly all the time and we used to have fabulous, he was a cinemaniac. Mm -hmm. um, and so we would just talk the whole day. We just sat and talked about movies the whole time. And like he was, he, we were both very happy because <laughs> it was like when you get like something like this, right? When you get somebody who like gets every reference and knows what you're talking about, like you just have a nice, fun conversation. So, um, of course, I'm very sad uh, what happened to him. And I, I, I'm glad that my memory of my day with him was very lovely. Um, and to say that I can say I've been in a Joe Dante movie, which is bananas. So he went from somebody terrifying me as a kid 
to, ca- <laughs> to casting me in his movie. How about that? Everything comes full circle. It does. But, Julia, before we take our first break, I want to ask you, why did you choose for us to watch the movie After Hours from 1985? I think this movie is incredible. Mm-hmm. I think it's so well acted. It's so weird. It's so beautiful. The camera work's insane. Um, and it has like the most joyous Dick Miller moment in it for me <laughs> when he catches her kiss. And it's like the cutest thing I've ever seen. It melts my heart every time he does it. It's so adorable. So we get that like my one of my favorite Dick Miller moments within this film, uh, which is a lot to pick apart because there's a lot going on in this movie, but it's fucking incredible. I mean, I can't think of a better setup than that. We're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Give the check. It's on the house. Really? Sure, what the hell. Different rules apply when it gets this late. You know what I mean? It's like uh, After Hours. (laughs) Thanks, Peter. Sure, Marcy. Have a good evening. Eleanor. An ordinary word processor has the worst night of his life after he agrees to visit a girl in Soho who he met that evening at a coffee shop. It is 1985's After Hours, directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, who I imagine if you are a listener of the show, he needs no introduction. Obviously, the director of Mean Streets, Goodfellas, The King of Comedy, my favorite Martin Scorsese movie, A Taxi Driver, and many, many more. Written by Joseph Minion, uh, also uh, the writer of 1988's Vampire's Kiss, which if you've not seen, has a uh, amazing Nicolas Cage performance in it, and 1991's Motorama. Uh, this script was actually his thesis for Columbia Film School, which he received an A for, though it was uh, discovered while they were making the movie that the first 30 minutes of this movie were actually an adaptation of Joe Frank's monologue, Lies. There's a a great um, uh, article about this issue online, which I'll link in the show notes. The film stars Griffin Dunn as Paul Hackett and a star-studded cast, which we'll get into, I'm sure, when we discuss it, including the great Dick Miller. But I want to start our conversation with what are your general thoughts on After Hours? Now, Julia, you've already said why you picked the movie – you mentioned the fact that it has this great Dick Miller scene in it. But overall, what do you think of After Hours? I think it's an incredibly unusual film. And I mm-hmm. think that it doesn't get the kudos it deserves because of it. Because I think some people just don't understand it because it's so incredibly weird. Mm-hmm. And I think especially watching it alone is different. Um, I got to see it. Uh, in London a couple of years ago and it was like a packed audience and people were laughing their asses off and it's like it's if you watch with a bunch of it's really funny but it also just is very strange so it depends on your sense of humor I think Uh, I don't think a lot of movies get made with this crazy tone like I don't even know Mm -hmm. what to call the tone it's like (laughs) wacky mystery existentialism that's the best the best I got. I've heard like screwball noir is oh, uh, sometimes what it's referred to. But yeah, certainly it's it's about this descent into this 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 almost fantasy world that just happens to exist in the real in real New York, I guess you could say, of 1985. Um, Liam, you've spent some time in New York City. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> How much does After Hours reflect the reality that you've experienced? You were now you are uh, just all jokes aside. You've, you've had some experience in the punk scene, the sure, underground sure, scene. Sure. You've seen what it's like on the uh, other side of the tracks. Uh, Liam, Stop. 
this is about someone from uh, who lives in sort of a sheltered reality within New York City and gets to experience what it's like, quote unquote, after hours. How much reality do you see in this movie? I mean, I'm sure there's actually a ton in the sense of like the conditions under which people are kind of living their lives. But I think part of the charm of the movie is the way it unfolds like a space between a nightmare and a story that your buddy tells you that like <laughs> you have a you have a friend who you're not sure if you trust all you know I have a friend who I love very much named uh, Brian Yan and he is very charming and a very good storyteller but you don't know like some of the stories you're like yeah that makes sense but the story where like him and three friends fight an entire frat on a party boat as they come off the gangplank <laughs> you're like did that happen that sounds like that didn't happen Brian yeah you maniac <laughs> yeah this story is 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 that I, I that's what I the whole time I'm watching it I can almost hear the garbled New York accent of the guy telling you this story about yeah, this is one night you know it's crazy and it didn't happen to him but it happened to a real good friend of his um you know what I mean like it, it has that but then there's also this sense of like um the reality of it feels almost malleable at times. It, it, it's unconcerned with uh, uh, some sort of like uh, narrative logic beyond things are just going to keep getting worse for this guy. Um, <laughs> and, and, and for me, I find the character uh, mildly annoying and unsavory. So do you the really? More, I really, I really like do. Him. He oh, I really me. don't. Man, he, <laughs> he really rubs me the wrong way. Not from the beginning. But towards the middle of the movie, I'm like, man, this dude kind of sucks. And thus, as things get worse and worse for him, I take great joy. This is a very <laughs> joyful movie for me. As things get worse, I continue to like laugh. And almost in a sense of like, um, I don't know if anyone's going to identify with this, but there are certain like uh, gangster or even like martial arts movies where things just keep getting worse for our guy. Sure. Uh, and they, they, you just see them get through despite these odds. I kind of feel that way. Like the worse things get, the more excited I get. Um, and, and I don't know that I wish him totally ill per se, but I don't feel like anxious for him. I'm not like, oh no, poor, oh, oh man. Now they blame him for all the robberies. I'm like, ha here we go. Like I get really excited about it. But uh, just sticking with you for a second, Liam, do you feel like the, the punishment fits the quote unquote crime in this case though there is a part in this movie where there's a threat that he is going to be sealed up in paper mache perhaps until he <laughs> dies uh is is that too much i mean there is sort of kind of a a real anxious and horrific element to that i don't know that i think it's a punishment thing i mean don't be wrong like if you want to accuse um scorsese of 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 being catholic at any moment i'm right there with you uh <laughs> but i don't know that he has that much animosity towards uh, Griffin Dunn's character, or 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 really any, but I do think he is the cause of these. Things. Like he keeps making poor decisions, and he couldn't possibly know how badly those are going to affect him. These are all poor decisions that could result in very mild embarrassment. But instead, the worst case scenario happens. So there's just something satisfying about that for me. I don't think it's an issue of like he has to pay the price, but there is a feeling of like he's from a different world and he probably should have thought about, you know, there's this weird thing. And, and you know, this is probably something that's that is shared between New York and my hometown of Philadelphia. There's certain stories you hear of someone going through something that sucks, that when you are a person from that place, there's a there's this weird part of you that kind of can't help but being like, 
should have known better. Like, <laughs> that's I, when I watch this, some, that, not everything. There's plenty of stuff that happens to him that there's no way. You know, when that twenty dollars flies out the window, <laughs> he probably shouldn't have put it in there. You know, whatever. But there are other things that happen. That I'm like, ah, oh, come on, man. You come, what right. were you thinking? It's an interesting perspective. I, I'm, I really want to get Julia's take on this because I probably am a little bit more sympathetic towards Paul as sure. an uptight, somewhat nevish person myself. Um, but I don't really agree that he's making these bad decisions throughout because it kind of feels like fate is being thrust upon him. When yeah. you try to escape from the rain and go into a bar and sit down, I mean, all these things that happen to him in that bar, he doesn't want anyone to bother him. He just wants to sit there and smoke a cigarette. But then you have Terry Garr and then you have John Hurd and all of these things. And it's like I, his motivation to just get home and to get away from this is a fairly pure and recognizable and relatable motivation. And it's not like he's intentionally getting sidetracked. It's just, I got to do this for two seconds so I can get the thing I need to get home. It's more like a uh, adventure game from the early 90s than it is, I think, him making bad decisions. Julia, why do you think Paul uh, doesn't necessarily deserve uh, what, what comes upon him in this movie? Okay, so I agree with you. I feel like he's kind of being pushed by fate. Really, right? like he doesn't. He's not in control of his actions. I mean, like in control of what happens to him. I sure. feel like, and I think that he feels that in the movie. And I feel like it's this sense of absurd. Like he can't stop it. He keeps trying to stop it. It's not going to stop. So he's just got to keep going. And he just, it, it's the feeling of like how fucking absurd it is and how it keeps getting crazier and crazier. <laughs> and that feeling inside of him where he's like trying to give up, but no, it won't let him give up. So like, he's trying to like, <laughs> please, please fate, but fate, fate will have none. And, and really like, what is he being punished for? Right. He's somebody, he doesn't seem like he's like coming from Beverly Hills to go to Hollywood. Like he seems like he's like a middle range kind of guy. So it's not like you're like slumming it or anything like that. And I think, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not like a neighborhoodist, you know, like there wouldn't be a neighborhood in LA that someone would tell me that they live there and I wouldn't go to that neighborhood. And I feel like part of the joy of living in a big city is exploring other parts of that city. So if like you've never, never met a girl who lives in this large town, you're like, yeah, I'll check it out. What's it like? Let's go find out. And I feel like that sense of exploration. And even though, even if it's like just based lust, like he just wants to go to have sex with her and go home, like that could be honestly all of it but he seems like a nicer guy than that and he seems like oh there's somebody i've made a connection with i'm this lonely guy who never makes connections and like that seems like more of what his motivation is than straight sex to me because I even could he, not disagree more it's really? unbelievable i'm sorry sorry i'm gonna interrupt ahead, you just for a second me. but like when he is sitting in that coffee shop near the beginning of the movie and he's reading the henry miller novel and and she, I mean, comes on to him and says, I really love, love that book. He's not looking to have that encounter. If anything, he, he kind of, his initial impression seems to be to blow her off. What is it about his decision making that makes you think that that he is a kind of, a, maybe scummy character is too strong of a word, but that he's more uh, responsible for what happens to him? I think, don't get me wrong, that situation is great. And then when he calls, I mean... There's something about his well, – let me back up. The neighborhood thing to me is a class movie. I think this movie is about class, undoubtedly. I think he is more than a fish out of water. He is an invader out of water. That whole office are invaders. <laughs> they are not New Yorkers. They are people who have come here for money, and they do not feel at home. And when he encounters the natives, he is much like uh, you know, the, the, the colonizer in, in a new land – unsure where to go and continually finding himself uh, put in situations he doesn't know how to negotiate. And for me, 
when he heads down there, that's that's uh, you know whatever. That's great. He he's made a connection. Whatever. It starts though on the phone when he doesn't know how to communicate with this woman who clearly doesn't want to talk to him. It continues <laughs> when he gets in there and the awkward ways he's trying to relate to her. I think are on purpose. I think Scorsese's like this dude is not got his shit together. And then when he, <laughs> to me, doesn't have a deep connection with uh, uh, Marcy. Marcy, he really could settle for Kiki in that moment. Whoever's around, he could probably settle for, except for yeah, poor but, Terry Gar. But who, by Kiki, the way, like, is throws great. herself at him. Kiki's ah, like, I'm going to be here in my bra. Asleep. Give me a massage. Like, that's pretty hardcore. Yeah, I, no, I just a... think that she's just a free. He doesn't know how to negotiate being around artists. And he, <laughs> he that has a no bad idea. person, though? <laughs> no, I, again, Doug is the one making this moral. Nothing about this is moral for me. And and if you could make a similar movie about Kiki having to go to Midtown and talk to a bunch of yuppies, and it would be not as fun, I think, but it would be the same thing of people who are very different from each other having to, like, figure it out. It's just the humor of the movie is that, though, you know, when I say mistakes, all he does continually is has trouble communicating directly. I don't think he's making <laughs> the only part that to me is clear that he is being a dick is all this stuff around the burn the possibility that she is a burn victim and he couldn't possibly make love to a burn victim. I, I mean, look, just, just, to, is, just to interrupt kind of that part, because I know that that is a sticking point for you. I mean, he does specifically voice the trauma that he experienced as a child in a burn ward that this is playing into, right? I mean, we know that it's not just that he's going, ew, a burn. It's because he had something that happened to him where burns in particular are something that kind of freaks him out. So can I then ask- you just talk about it. Can I ask what we think? Because she she doesn't she doesn't have a burn, right? No, no, not so at all. So she has this book of burn stuff. She goes to put like mysterious cream on in the bathroom before she comes to bed. So what what's the whole deal with it? I'm gonna start. I'll let you answer this one, Liam. <laughs> I mean, I just think I I this is one of the moments at which right I don't need to know like that's part of what makes the story fun is that you never know and that's how yeah. these always work right like oh, you yeah. just had this moment where somebody's like i'm never gonna see that person again what the fuck was that yeah and, I, and if you're telling the story to someone they might go well what was the deal and you go i don't fucking know what the deal was she killed herself how would i know yeah what, what the reason was it, it, i never got to ask you know I, it does sound to me liam that you naturally dislike bland and unadventurous people which is not an unfair perspective to take on life but it does feel like the fact that this person is is not a colorful person and we see his bland beige apartment at the beginning and he <laughs> introduces himself into this colorful night world of new york and he cannot work his way through it i do the sympathetic thing for me is his response to not being able to maneuver through it is oh i need to get back home and he's just trying to get out of it it's not like he's he's like i'm gonna stick around here and show that i know how to do this which is something you know the kind of the ugly american trait uh present company accepted certainly uh that you sometimes see he wants to get out of there and he just can't and that to me is the most relatable thing about this character which is that i've been in situations where i'm like you know what this is not for me i need to get out of it and uh and he's in that nightmare scenario and sticking on that word nightmare there is a very dreamlike aspect mm -hmm. to yeah, much of yeah, the actions yeah. in this movie and, and I, I think that 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 burn aspect i think that plays into it it's just what what is your biggest anxiety well, sure. if, you, if yeah. you had this horrible yeah. childhood incident about uh, about uh, burn victims, and now you're in this situation, what if this beautiful woman actually was a burn victim? And this is like your psych, your uh, your psyche playing 
on that scenario and introducing itself into it. I don't know if it's ne- necessarily supposed to be that literal in terms of the dreamlike aspect, but, but that's sort like, of my takeaway. I feel like Paul like feels like he's in a dream a lot of this movie. And yes. I think yes. a lot of his yes. actions are this kind of weird removed reaction because he isn't sure if it's real or not. And because it keeps getting more and more nightmares, so he seems more and more removed from it. Um, and I think that, that he doesn't know how to yeah transverse that. And I think it's just this like... it. But it's also interesting, like, you have someone who's so lonely, like, we get this idea that, like, he never really talks to anybody. Mm-hmm. And you have this sure. night where he has to talk and meet to all these people. And they're all people who, like, at first glance seem to be really nice and then all turn into these monsters in front of his eyes, like, every single one of them. And so you have all this, plus all these, like, beautiful women who, you're like, he he's probably hasn't slept with someone in forever. And now he's got, like, five beautiful women inviting them to his house. But they're <laughs> all psychotic. So it just, like, gets, like, this, you know, it's so, like, he... On the surface, yes, he might have wanted to go over to Marcy's, just had sex, whatever. And now potentially has had sex with, could have had sex with all of these women. But every single one of them turns out to be weird. Um, so it's this cast of characters where they're all removed, but then they all are kind of in, interconnected as well. Like it, it does feel like almost this kind of like conspiracy theory where like everybody is in on the joke. <laughs> sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and like, and I think he feels that as well. So he's like, why is it it's all connected? It's the same thing happening over and over and he can't really figure it out. I think, I, uh, I think I I vibe with everything you just said. Only I identify with all the monsters and not with him. And, <laughs> and as I'm watching it, I'm thinking I think Scorsese does too. Like I actually think he is plucking out someone who he does not identify with and putting him in this situation. And there's a lot of sympathy to that. I feel bad for him at many times at the movie, but I also many times I'm like, if you would stop being anxious and just explain yourself better, you wouldn't be in this situation. But the results are not, I mean, the thing that Doug could ask me about is like, do you think it's fair? This movie is not meant to be fair. That would be fun. What's fun is that the worst thing happens to him again and again. (laughs) And it makes me fucking laugh. I mean, feel anxious. Let's be clear. I also think this could function as a horror movie in some ways because the yeah. level of anxiety is so high, but yeah, it's but, still and that's hilarious. The of it, right. And like, it, it almost comes from like this kind of, you could like it as like this, like kind of like mental illness, anxiety thing. Like if he could just get over it and be okay. And it does have this kind of looping quality to it, right? Like he yes, keeps, yes. He comes back to the punk club. He comes back to the coffee shop. He comes back to the, you know, the, all of it. And like, so it just, again, this kind of dreamlike thing where it's just like looping around and you can't get out of it. It's also a movie that's very much about sex, and it's it's his pursuit of sex initially, which kind of gets him into that trouble. One of the notable images in this movie is when he goes to the bathroom and sees that image of the uh, erect penis with the shark biting it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that's maybe the, one of the images that I really take away from it as well. I want to pull back uh, from the movie's plot for a moment to talk about After Hours and kind of a larger cultural context, which is that this movie is one that I think has really gained in reputation over the past 15 or 20 years. Um, I, I That period, that 1980s period of Martin Scorsese that starts with Raging Bull but then turns into The King of Comedy and then After Hours and The Last Temptation of Christ, these are movies that I think are very, very interesting. Some of my favorite Scorsese movies are from this period. I think I already mentioned King of Comedy is my very favorite. Um, but After Hours was one that I feel like when I was first getting into movies in the 1990s, people really didn't rank it that high. Uh, it was not one that I think was regarded as highly, but I think that it has found its audience since then, uh, maybe because of availability, maybe because of the ability to rewatch it. I think this is a movie, I think you'd agree with this, Liam, that really benefits from rewatching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That now I think people, some people say it's their very favorite. I want to talk to, starting with you, Julia, where does After Hours rank for you in the filmography of Martin Scorsese? Okay, so 
I have something I'm kind of embarrassed because I haven't <laughs> seen. No, I haven't seen the. I haven't seen his big ones. Okay, sure. so I have. I haven't seen Goodfellas. I haven't seen Raging Bull. I haven't seen Casino. I haven't seen Main Streets. I feel bad about this as a film lover. I will get to them eventually. So I will say that my my Scorsese knowledge is quite limited. Um, Taxi Driver, of course, is fucking iconic. Um, and every time I watch it, I forget that it has a happy ending, and I go, "Wow, that's crazy! This movie has a happy ending." Um, and so I, After Hours might be my favorite is that crazy no not at all in my seat like, if you, if you like if you me. love taxi driver i could definitely see this being uh being a fave or or your favorite movie I'm, i might debate more about the happy ending about taxi driver itself but i mean that's that's a well, conversation I mean, he, for another he, he, time he lives and she gets away and gets to go be happy quote unquote right yeah, so like absolutely. you expect him to be like the end of the movie is like him laying dead bloody on the floor like that's what yeah. you expect you're like 100 oh, punished for this but actually he lives and he's fine so that's kind of insane so um, I, but I, you, you feel comfortable driver... with this with the idea that if you were someone asked you what is your favorite martin scorsese movie you would say after hours okay so here's the thing my favorite, yes. Do I think Taxi Driver is a better movie? Possibly. Probably. <laughs> Probably a better film and a more iconic film. But I, you know, as because I watched this movie uh, After Hours for the first time in film class in college. Mm. So we really got to break it down and, and look at the beauty of it and like how much the music plays into it and how much the editing plays into it and the camera work and how, you know, the as the night goes on, the, the camera work gets more and more insane and like those kind of things and... I just look at it as so much fun. And I think that, you know, Martin Scorsese seems to have a quite serious career. Um, and this is one of the ones that feels lighter, which I like. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so uh, I've, you know, I've watched it a ton of times. Um, and I, every, again, every, like, as you said, like it's upon rewatch, you catch all the little connections and all the little things you didn't notice before. Um, and I think it's a really funny, really beautiful film. So I've shown this movie to a lot of people and, I really like it. Do you think that uh, – where does it rank for you guys? Well, Poly- I want to hear it from, from Liam first. Now, Liam knows uh, that I, I I sometimes compare After Hours to another favorite Martin Scorsese movie, Bringing Out the Dead from the okay. late 90s, um, which I think has that kind of similar sort of nightmarish uh, aspect to it, Liam. How do you – now, we, we've talked about the conflict that you have regarding the Paul character, but it doesn't seem to uh, affect your enjoyment of the movie. Oh, if anything, it might enhance no. it somewhat. Yes, where, where does yeah, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where does this fit in your uh, in your ranking, let's say, of Martin Scorsese? I, so I haven't done an official, like, sit down, look at the list, really put numbers on it. Uh, there's just something about ranking Scorsese movies that feels a little bit too film bro for me to be really invested in. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, it, he's one of, uh, like a lot of directors that I think certain parts of the film conversation right off because they're so obvious that liking them somehow makes you basic or I don't know, somehow lesser. Uh, he's still very, very good. And one of my favorites. So uh, I, I probably should come up with an official. I will say it's near the top. I don't know that I would say number one. Sure. Uh, some of the films I think of before this are things like last temptation of Christ, uh, taxi driver, even like Mean Streets, I know it's like you know going that far back is like oh Mean Streets is but but uh, <laughs> no who does that some... who who does that who do you know that would do that when you said that and you know that nobody listening you... to this podcast would do that either because it's all the film nerds all loving together yeah I but but uh, okay so but here's, here's 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 what I'm saying I don't want to be one of those people that's like I really just prefer the early work because like 
you know, I love the Wolf of Wall Street. Like, I, I don't want to be, you know, someone who's like, you know, uh, the early Scorsese is great and then I don't care. But that's partly why I love this movie, because it is one of those this and King and Comedy are films that I only heard people talking about when I started getting into conversations with like real movie obsessed people. The folks I knew before I started like really talking to film nerds, people who just like generally like movies, they've only seen the 70s stuff or the more recent stuff. And it's like it's almost like between Raging Bull and um Goodfellas, he didn't do anything because no one talks about it. And uh, it really is like a bummer to me because I I I prefer King and Comedy and uh this movie Two good fellas, like I, you know, I, I don't know that maybe there's lots of people for whom that's not controversial. I like how we're, have... we're all saying this with a question mark in our voice, like we're going to get punished <laughs> for saying it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, there, there are folks for whom I am friends with who Goodfellas is like top five all time movie. Right. You know what I mean? And I, and I don't think that's a dumb or bad opinion to have. It's just this movie is great. Like, there's something about this. Uh, him doing this kind of nightmarish comedy that feels so right for me. And it, it really, I think plays into a lot of his strengths. And I think, um, I really appreciate, uh, uh, you know, as, as was already said, the way this movie looks too, it's not just firing on all cylinders narratively. It's not just firing in the sense of like the jokes are hitting as the anxiety builds, but it's a beautiful movie to look at, which is like the first time I saw it, not what I was expecting. Honestly, I, I figured this was, partly because it isn't talked about so much, not going to be that. And it really is. So I, I don't you, know. You get to see him having fun for once, right? Like where he right. can do these like wacky camera moves that he doesn't normally get to do. Right, right. Um, and he, we have something that also is so much fun that's set in one night, you know, which is like a whole genre of movie into itself, right? You could do a whole podcast like movies that are set in one night and how influential this movie is. Like you think about, I don't know if you guys have seen, as I mentioned, I went on an Ethan Hawke binge uh, when I was younger. <laughs> um, Mystery Date is one of my favorite Ethan Hawke movies, yeah. which is yeah. basically just after hours for teenagers. Like yep. it's and, almost uh, exactly the same. Before we started, I think Liam, you mentioned Adventures in Babysitting takes a lot from uh-huh. After Hours. Uh, uh, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, I think, is uh, influenced greatly by After Hours. This sort of uh, yuppie nightmare movie uh, was was a, a, a fairly standard thing in the mid '80s, but I think After Hours is still the the kind of uh, starting point for a lot of what came after it. Sure, it's well, like one of those things where like Jaws comes out, and then you have all of these other like right. rip off Jaws. It's kind of like the same thing. They're just all trying oh, to rip off After Hours. Oh, Orca as well. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what I like about I no, no, no. But I, what I like about After Hours is comparison to a lot of those other movies is that, um, and maybe this is you know depends on the viewer. But uh, a lot of those movies depend on the city being populated with like uh, utter caricatures, like right. like like pure '80s fantasy caricatures, and um, even the goofiest characters in this movie still feel like people to me. You know what I mean? Like even if they're played for a laugh. You know, even the bouncer is like, oh, that's a that's a guy. That's a guy that's out there somewhere. You know what I mean? Like it's it's it, it makes more sense than we need a random brown man in spikes and a bandana holding. You know what I mean? Like a lot of these movies just rely on. Look, I saw a picture of a rapper and a punk and a biker. Let's smush them all together, make them vaguely brown and have them threaten our, our teenagers on the street or something. You know what I mean? Like sure. it's not that it's like a very lived in world. And even if that world is like the nightmare of paul it still feels like you know it's a it, it, it's a it's an exaggerated version of something i believe exists you know <laughs> yeah like this because this film is nuanced right like this film like you get to right, the right. characters are not flat like you get to know a little bit about them and they seem like people but instead of just doing 
Yeah, because that's because he's a great filmmaker, right? So he can do that. And he can probably get the performances out of these people that's going to happen. And it's, it is about this tone thing, right? Like, it is about getting everybody on the same page. It'd be like, we all know we're in the same kind of movie, which everybody gets it. And I think just the absurdity of it is what is the key. Um, and the other times it feels like, like I think about like Mystery Date, and it's more of like, it's a hassle and he's scared, but it's not absurd. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like yeah. I need that absurdity to it to make it feel like because I feel like I could this kind of thing could happen to me. I could see this potentially like some kind of thing going to downtown L.A. and it just becomes this one after another kind of thing. Like I see in a big city how something like this could happen. So it does feel possible. You're just not quite in the real world. You're like one parallel universe over from the real world. <laughs> I could see it. Look, I, I've had some. Late nights, especially uh, in my younger years in Toronto, where I, I know I know it doesn't seem probably adventurous to either of you. For for someone from small town Newfoundland, this this larger city and the uh, aspects of it that I have incredible discomfort with. Uh, I, yeah, maybe that's why my ability to relate to this character it, it connects with it a little bit more to the point where your uh, your response to it, Liam, I think is reflective of your own lived experience. Julia, sticking with you and getting back into the movie kind of proper, what are some interactions? In, now, this movie is really kind of a series of interactions. Mm-hmm. Paul, a lot with, with many women in this case, mm-hmm. uh, he, he first meets up with Roseanne Arquette's character. He eventually, uh, you know, he meets up with Terry Garr. He meets up with Catherine O'Hara. What, uh, are there any particular interactions in this movie that stick out to you? Um, so I really like kiki a lot um mm-hmm. because linda fiorentino plays her with the most like lackadaisical like she's so <laughs> intense but also so fucking chill at the exact same time but you feel like she could possibly punch you at any any moment possibly um and i like that, that weird <laughs> dynamic that she's so like she's so over chill that she just like transfers all of this anxiety to him and it just makes it this great dynamic i really like the the guy who takes him home where he like finally is able to vent everything that's happened to him that night. And the guy that's just is so yes. bored the whole time. <laughs> um, and then that's um, my favorite moment with Paul is when he calls the police from that apartment and they hang up on him and he does the, Oh wow. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> I like, it's just that moment where he breaks where he's like, okay, okay. Give up. Here we are. Another character that we just see for a moment is uh, Horst, played by Will Patton. Yeah, where, where he's the S and M discipline. You need discipline, <laughs> exactly. But I love, <laughs> I love when Griffin Dad is trying to untie her. He's like, "What <laughs> are these? Are these thieves? Are they sailors? Like, how, how do they do this? It's unbelievably <laughs> intricate knot tying." Uh, Liam, how about yourself? Uh, any uh, favorite interactions from the movie? I mean, it's easy to go with the more ridiculous ones, like when he's at Terry Gar's apartment and things like that. But uh, the <laughs> first wait, one, wait, can I just? I'm sorry. Can we just point out my favorite thing about the Terry Gar apartment is the fucking mousetraps in the spotlight. Yes, <laughs> yes. What is that? Well, oh because the, the the whole time he's being kind of like weird with her. Uh, I'm kind of like, I don't know if Terry Gar came on to me, I'd be so stoked. But when he sees those <laughs> mouse traps, I was like. Well, fuck, you can't stay here. I don't care what she, no matter what happens next, those mousetraps mean you have to leave. And it's like one of those moments where I really felt bad for him. Um, The other moment I actually really felt bad for him, and it's a small interaction, but I kind of loved it, was uh, when he just tries to get on the subway and the fare has gone up. (laughs) That dude is, that's so real. And I've had so many conversations like that. And I was just like, man, this moment is almost too real. And then when he's just like, 
fuck it, I'll just jump right into the police officer. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's me trying to break a law. You know, if I ever in my life, I'm like, I'm going to be a rebel. Fuck laws. I do what I want. I'm sure to be the guy that jumps basically into the lap of the MTA cop. Just like, oh, hello there, sir. I'll never do that again. Bye. Like, that's like it, it was one of those moments where I was like, OK, I, this, I, I feel connected to this man very much. Uh, but honestly, like every interaction, like every interaction eventually becomes insane, right? Like yeah. <laughs> as much as I really appreciate these characters, the way that they get pushed, I mean, I love Catherine O'Hara in this movie. So much so, by the way, Doug, uh, speaking of, uh, we were talking earlier about po- uh, podcast ideas. We were watching that scene and Susan goes, <laughs> when are you going to start your Catherine O'Hara podcast? Yeah. I was like, oh man, that's a good question, actually. That might be worth thinking about. But uh, I just love her role in this movie because it's really at a moment where he needs someone and everything about it is just hilarious to me. I love his desperation when she mentions that she could drive him home in yeah. the ice cream truck. And he's like, yeah, that'll solve all my problems. Let's just do that right now. And of course, it immediately fucks up in his face. Uh-huh. uh-huh. How, how about his getting his his head his head shaved at the punk <laughs> club? Yes, yes. The whole punk club is great because it's like ridiculous but weirdly accurate. You know what I mean? Like he comes in and they're playing the bad brains. Uh, they're obviously like you know costume punks, but multiple people have like crass back patches and stuff. I was like, this is a weird combination of like real life and ridiculous. We're just shaving everyone's heads in the mohawks. <laughs> Mohawk this guy. Yeah, it's so weird. My uh, my favorite interaction and my favorite line in the entire movie, and I put it on uh, Twitter last night as I was watching it, is when he's trying to exchange phone numbers with Terry Gar. And she's just giving him this string of numbers. And yeah. he's so desperate just to get out of the situation. He's like, he goes, I'm going to write it here. I'm going to write it on this thing where she was sketching on. She's like, my number is 54433. Very easy to remember. He's like, uh, that's not enough numbers, but okay. He just keeps <laughs> writing it. And then she has to get angry. And that's another thing, right? Like emotionally, people are on this trigger in this movie where they could switch at any moment. I mean, it is a movie about these interactions. And I mean, it, it really does kind of reflect what you said, Liam, which is that he has no idea how to deal with people like this. So he inevitably does the wrong thing when sometimes you get the impression that maybe there is no right thing, that it's always going to be screwy for him in some way. Um, I, like I could talk kind of like that, like Oedipus thing, right? Where like you try to, you know, you're going to kill your father, marry your mother. So you move away and then you will exactly kill your father, marry your mother, right? Like yeah, no matter exactly. how far away you get away from it, it's going to bring you right on back. Now, that actually plays directly into what I want to talk about next before we talk about Dick Miller, which is the ending of this movie. Now, notoriously, Martin Scorsese had difficulty finding an ending for After Hours. They actually had to go back and reshoot for a few days to get it figured out. As the movie ends uh, in this form, um, Griffin Dunn's character gets (laughs) covered in paper mache, tossed out of a uh, – or actually uh, falls out of a truck driven by Cheech and Chong right in front of his workplace where the movie – began uh, basically literally bringing him back home, the home that he's been trying to get to for the entirety of the movie. I just want to get both of your interpretation of what we're supposed to think of this, considering that uh, your views of Paul differentiate so significantly. I'm actually going to start with with you, Liam. Uh, How are we, or how do you, I should say, interpret this ending? Is this a happy ending? Is it a a confused ending? What do you think about it? I mean, that's a fair question. I, I'll be honest, on this viewing, I didn't really think too much about the ending other than that it's hilarious that he just falls out of the truck in front of his his <laughs> business, uh, out of the van, rather, out of at his business, and just walks into work like, all right, I guess this is just what's going to happen now. Like, I've had this night. And, and 
some weird part of me thought, well, this is realistic too, right? Like for a certain like uh, midtown employee, like there were people going out and exploring uh, the the uh, other parts of the city and just coming back to work like everything was normal. Like that's actually something that happened. So him kind of caricaturing that in like breaking out of this paper mache thing and coming into work covered in all this dust. There's nothing about that that like is just very funny to me. And the fact that no one says anything and just, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I also feel like, and we talked about this a little before we recorded, with all the sort of camera work at the end and whatever, like maybe there is like a, 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 uh, I don't want to say deeper meaning, but there is like a, a note that we're hitting on the end. For me, it was just like he wakes up and he's back in the real world. He's back in what is his real world. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting as a way to end the film. Um, but I don't know that I was looking for anything to it that was more significant than that. I mean, I guess it depends slightly on what your interpretation of the reality of the movie is. Now, there's been a few interpretations of this movie that it follows the structure of The Wizard of Oz that we're supposed sure. to see his, his taxi ride uh, near the beginning of the movie where the money flies out the window as like the tornado mm-hmm. at the beginning of The Wizard of Oz, that there's imagery that reflects The Wizard of Oz from the yellow brick road to rainbows, things like that. I think that that is at least worth discussing to some extent. We're not going to do it here. There's some great video essays that you can check out out there. But the ending is, I think, the thing that is most open to interpretation in regards to how it reflects on the rest of the movie. Because it is celebratory. I mean, you have that great classical piece at the end as the camera does this amazing movement. Uh, I mean, really the most showy camera work comes in the final few seconds of this movie. Julia, how did you interpret the ending of this movie? Well, we've talked about it seeming dreamlike the whole time, right? So you can have this one interpretation where he literally maybe just fell asleep at work, right? And that was a dream, and now he woke up and he's back there. Um, But I think it's more of – I think it's like the way that this would actually work in real life where like you now – just got to work at the exact same time that you're supposed to be at work and you walk in at this like, like <laughs> nothing has happened. And I feel like it would be the thing where Paul for the rest of his life would just be like, did that really happen? You would just, you would freak out about it for the rest of your life. Like, I can't believe that actually happened. And you would have no one to witness that it did. So it would become this kind of legend in your own mind, I feel like, where it would be because it felt so dreamlike, like he would probably maybe cause him to have a nervous breakdown would be my next thing for this character, perhaps. Sure. Or, or, or maybe like move. Maybe this has gone too far. This is this is after after movie uh, character development. We don't need. Uh, <laughs> well, no, but I did wonder. I was like, I wonder if this is supposed to mean like he's back to real life or is this like just the beginning? Now, every night he's going to be trolling the oh. Lower East Side and Soho and stuff <laughs> looking for excitement and uh, all kinds of utter chaos. Yeah, if, his, that- if his life didn't seem boring before, it'll certainly seem boring now. I watched a few of these video essays. There's some really interesting ones out there, even though you have to take some of the conclusions potentially with a grain of salt. But one of them do mention that if you uh, examine the the kind of uh, swift camera movement at the very end, as it's turning, he is no longer at the desk that he sat in when he comes into his office at the end of the movie, that he, that even though his coat is still there or his jacket is on the back of the, of the chair, he is not there any longer. Now, that's possible be, possibly because they didn't want to have Griffin done there as they do that take of doing that camera movement over and over. Or you could interpret it that after he sat down at that desk, his immediate reaction was to get up and leave again. Uh, but just, uh, just something to think about in regards to the final moments of After Hours. I like to interpret it more on the dreamlike kind of scale, which is that this loops like a lot of dreams do. Uh, you mentioned before, Julia, that there are, are the locations in this movie tend to loop as well. He keeps mm-hmm. returning back to it. But like the idea of him 
ending where he begins, I think that's kind of a, a perfect kind of uh, end point for a story that is so dreamlike to occur. And, and also, there is, you know, another interpretation of this movie, which is that everything in it is a dream. That the moment he's talking to Bronson Pinchot at the very beginning, and he starts looking around and being bored by that story, that all of the, what takes place afterwards is in his own head. I oh. don't, nece- I don't necessarily cater to that interpretation. Because why would of, you daydream that? <laughs> well, right? I mean, especially the the more nightmarish aspects of it. It's not like he just kind of fall asleep in the middle of work. But, uh, but I do think that there's something to that. Obviously, there is a moment at the beginning where this boring conversation is occurring where he's thinking about you know possibilities in his own life maybe that he's he's recognizing how boring things are around him and it's what kind of motivates him to make these decisions that maybe he normally wouldn't have made uh but there's so much to take away from after hours it's a movie that i think is as i already said very much worthy of revisiting and rewatching. uh there's so much detail within it and to me it's kind of a comfort movie i know that sounds kind of strange considering how anxiety inducing it can be but it is one that i always feel very comfortable and very kind of safe <laughs> revisiting maybe it's because this character is going through these things rather Rather than myself. <laughs> However, we are here, believe it or not, to talk about Dick Miller in mm-hmm. the movie After Hours. Dick Miller plays Pete, who I believe, it's hard to tell exactly what his position is. I guess he's a cashier at the diner that uh, that they uh, visit in the uh, movie briefly. He has this, uh, he actually gives the movie its name. Uh, the I'll, I'll get the quote exactly since I have it here in the outline. Uh, he just talks about that. That he they he puts the their uh their meal or I guess a coffee on the house and he says different rules apply this late know what I mean? It's like after hours, which is what the movie is. Different rules apply. You got to take through. a drink every time there's a title in the movie. That's my that, rule. Exactly. Uh, we also then have a really sweet moment, which I know that you're going to talk about in just a second, Julia. Sticking with you, uh, what do you think of Dick Miller in this movie? What what do you think uh your takeaway from him appearing in this is? I think that he's able to do so much with so little. Like he's in this movie for so little, and yet he seems like he come like his person, like his character comes across immediately, right? This kind of worn down but very affable kind of man who you know he knows Marcy, so he's very kind, and you know is he's just he seems like because he plays kind of grumpy guys a lot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So this is like him being happy for once, which is maybe why I like it so much. Um, and him just like the way he looks at uh, Marcy and like catching her kiss and all. It's like it just it it's one of those things where he knows he's too old for her and she knows she's too young for him. And they but they still have this cute flirty thing, and I like that. It's like a cute dynamic uh, that I think they have, and it, it actually gives a different side to Marcy as well because she's pretty bananas let's be honest and (laughs) to have her know that she like oh she's a regular at this coffee shop and she's nice to this guy and he's nice to her like oh she seems human too there in this moment even though we don't get much human side of her else (laughs) really (laughs) that that speaking of that that dorothy wizard of oz monologue is killer Yes, it is another big takeaway from this movie. Now, we're not there's not a lot to say about the Dick Miller performance here. It is only just a, a couple of minutes on screen, but I do think of him as almost like a gateway or a gatekeeper to the mm-hmm. more dreamlike nightmarish aspects. He's really the last warm character, like completely transparently warm and caring character that that we really encounter for a, a good portion of the movie, if not the entire rest of it. Uh, I guess you could consider Terry Gar's character, but even she has some uh, wild swings, let's say. Liam, what did you think of Dick Miller in After Hours? 
this is how you use in my mind uh dick biller in this period in that as soon as you see him it's so welcome and nice you know what i mean like mm-hmm. I, I i'm not sure i granted i haven't watched every 80s appearance or even 90s appearance of dick biller uh so i don't i'm not saying this is a universal thing but i'm not sure that always uh he's utilized for the most impact in such a short like small role and this was to me again it, i'd love it if he was in the movie more but if you're going to have him quickly this is perfect it's memorable no one is going to forget this character because it is this moment where paul is like wait what you know like that look on his face the (laughs) the feeling of like does she is she intimate with this man at the diner what should i be concerned you know what i mean like that that all of that anxiety is being there and he's so smooth and so charming and like you both of you already pointed out kind of like setting up a lot of what the movie is about in just a quick little thing that like i love like when we're doing these podcasts on a certain actor and they're only in the movie for you know a minute uh that's usually a letdown uh but i felt like this was like really good like oh great that was a great dick miller cameo like that really made sense and we know of course that martin scorsese has his own uh connections with the roger corman school uh, sure in the the early 70s so Mm -hmm. you know seeing dick miller there is a reminder i guess for people who who love films and love filmmaking and its history uh of that connection as well i mean just as we see him in the joe dante movies uh and and you know and and a lot of the films that even uh, obviously in the terminator some some of his more memorable appearances come from those connections that came from the 60s and 70s it's just great to see his face and this is the one of the more iconic looks for dick miller and and uh julia i think you made a really wonderful point which is it's just nice to see him playing a kind sweet character instead of kind of the more gruff even when they're they're good uh people in a lot of these movies he still has a kind of a gruff exterior uh even extending to demonite to some extent so here it's just kind of nice it's a nice thing in a movie that doesn't have a lot of nice things uh which is not to say that we don't all enjoy after hours uh and i i think this is a nice note to end our conversation on Dick Miller and the movie After Hours, uh, it is one that I strongly, very much highly recommend, particularly if um, maybe what you were referring to, Liam, if your perspective on Martin Scorsese as a filmmaker is defined by uh, films like Mean Streets and Goodfellas and Casino, uh, maybe it's, it's time to open up your horizons a little bit and to experience uh, some of his quirkier and more interesting, more interesting depending on your perspective output uh and i and i know that julia it's funny because you've actually taken the exact opposite track right you've you've uh consciously avoided his more uh popular or i guess more lauded films to a certain extent which isn't to say that you're not going to visit them it's just that those ones are easy right they're easy to get to goodfellas is always going to be available it's always going to have its its champions it's uh it, it takes a little bit more digging sometimes to find movies like after hours that's incredibly true. I completely agree. And when you, when I think of Dick Miller, I think Gremlins number one and After Hours number two. So I was like, well, here we go. I mean, I'm not going to diss on Gremlins for sure. That's a fantastic movie. But, you know, this – I don't know. It's just like if you were to say like the image of – like the video of Dick Miller that lives rent-free in my head, it would be him catching that kiss like over and over. It would be the gif of, of, of Dick Miller in my head. <laughs> Julia, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of a very busy schedule to join us to talk about After Hours and, of course, the great Dick Miller. If people want to check out the work that you're currently up to, if they want to help support your efforts in the future, what's the best way for them to do so? 
Um, I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as Julia C. Marchesi. I am very active and I answer my DMs and everything. And so I have still accepting donations for I Know What You Need. If you'd like to help out and produce a film that Stephen King will watch, uh, there's that. And then I also have a podcast called Horror Movie Survival Guide. It's all about how you survive horror movies. We do a deep dive each week on something that, you know, we'll talk about crazy, crazy movies. So join <laughs> join me there. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, you asked me and I was like, who doesn't want to talk about Dick Miller? Of course. 100%. <laughs> Believe it or not, I've run into some people in my day-to-day life. <laughs> Aww, well, I know. I know. You can't. There's, I'll, there's ma- I'll make up for them with my enthusiasm. 100%. There's no accounting for taste, as we all know in this crazy world in which we live. Julia, thanks again so much. We'll, of course, link all of those uh, things, your social media and uh, and everything else, and the uh, podcast link in our show notes. Liam O'Donnell, lots of exciting stuff happening at Cinepunks. Uh, where can people find out more about the Cinema Smorgasbord podcast and, uh, and the work that you're up to? Well, they head on over to Cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Dot com. They can find out about this show, other podcasts, interesting writing. Um, hopefully, I don't know if it's ready yet, but hopefully some new <laughs> shows are going to be premiering possibly in December when this comes out. So I hope that's true. We did just drop two new uh, Cinepunk shirt designs. If people want to support the site and they're not willing to commit to Patreon, uh, getting a shirt is a great way to support the site. Uh, one, in fact, based upon our conversation here on the show, is a uh, Holy Mountain rip that says – uh, yeah, it says Cinepunks at the top, and it says Zoom Back Camera at the bottom. Oh, my God. Favorite ending of a movie ever in my, that in my life. That blew my fucking mind that first time I saw it. And yes! I tell you, it's and, unbelievable. Yeah. And you could blow your friends' minds with this T-shirt. <laughs> uh, if people are just interested in this podcast, which, you know, if they're fans of you, that might be the case, they can head on over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, and you know, that's where our whole archive is and they can get into all the amazing episodes we've been able to do, uh, together <laughs> for the show. If they want to follow us on Twitter, we're at cinema smorg. Stop at the G at cinema smorg. That's it. Uh, and if they're interested, can you, in do, it, can you do it one more time? Cinema smorg. <laughs> and if they're interested in, in cinepunks, we're at cinepunks, C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram. We're on all three there. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere we get it, Liam. You can, yeah. of course, also follow Liam on Twitter, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And if you want to, you can follow myself, Doug Tilly, at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. E-Y. As Liam mentioned, you can go to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Check out our other podcast devoted to such diverse actors as Jackie Chan, as Carol Kane, as, of course, the great Eric Roberts and Vic Diaz. Uh, check him out over there. And if you could leave us a review on iTunes, we'd appreciate it very much. But folks, it's time for us to go away once again, just for a little while. We'll be back again very soon with another Dick Miller favorite. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.